Totally Football Show, the oh yeah, there's another round of games between Boxing Day and New Year edition. Today, West Ham's lack of fizz means they're now sans Pellegrini as Manuel makes way. When life gives you limonata, make do with Moyes. Elsewhere, Arsenal burnt by late Chelsea comeback as Leno fumble makes Arteta grumble. The sickly stench of VAR emanates from armpits across the Premier League. Dortmund swap Euros for Erling. Rangers win the derby. All that and plenty more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yeah, you knew it was on the cards, listeners. So many games in such a short period was always going to necessitate a rotate up top. I know, I know. First, your fancy football team's decimated. Thanks, Brendan. Then your favourite podcast host gets taken out of the red zone. But the good news is that even though it's me, Matt Davis-Adams, rather than Jimbo at the wheel, I've got a panel of such quality that it would make Dion Dublin shriek with glee were it in a three-bedroom mid-terrace in Swindon and it was near the stairs going up to the bedrooms. There are your stairs going up to the bedrooms. Back over this decent sized hallway, you've got the stairs going up to the bedrooms. You've got your stairs going up to your bedrooms. So with me today, first up, no sign of fatigue for this athletic associate as he makes back-to-back pod appearances despite barely any recovery time. Hello, Raphael Honigstein. Hello. Uh, Alongside Rafa, another of his athletic brethren, the best-dressed person I know, and I know Jimbo, it's Carl Anker. Uh, Carl, following on from Thursday's show and the Swedish Donald Duck revelations, I've been asked to ask you why your name is Carl Anker. Because my dad did his uh, master's degree in Copenhagen, was informed about this, thought it was quite funny, uh, and then uh, more or less sat on it and waited. So he originally wanted to call me a man or two, uh, junior. My mum said no, then wanted to to call me George. My mum went, that's my older brother's name. And then in a sort of, all right then, let's let's try this. Call him Carl for all I care. My mum's gone, yeah, Carl, that's a good name. Uh, And didn't tell me until... Well, he, he didn't tell me. I, I waited until I was uh, 21 years of age and I was uh, on the chirps, as some might say, in a nightclub in West London. Uh, told the girl, my name was Carl Anker. She went, no, it's not. I said, it is. She was, it's not. When it is, I went, show me your ID right now. Got my ID up, showed it to her. This young woman was from Stockholm. I went, do you know what your name is? Uh, and then proceeded to laugh in my face and then dragged me downstairs to meet all of her Swedish friends and went, Donald Duck. Donald Duck and I just sort of stood there and went wow so did it hurt or hinder the chirps well I was 21 and wasn't as well dressed now so the chirps was always going to fail okay good to know uh, completing our triumvirate of chatters author of Do You Speak Football writer for ESPN he found the head of the nail when he tweeted on Sunday football is a simple game 22 men chase a ball for 90 minutes and at the end VAR ruins it hello Tom Williams Hello, Matt. So that round of games that often get forgotten in the whirlwind of festivities actually saw plenty of newsworthy stuff occur. Let's get to discussing it then, starting at the Emirates. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Misses it. It's an absolute gift for Jorginho. An absolute present. And all that organisation has gone up in smoke with a goalkeeping error. It was a smash and grab from Frankie's fellas on Sunday as they enjoyed another day out in North London. Coming from behind to beat Arsenal 2-1 despite trailing for more than 70 minutes, it means that for the first time in 60 years, Arsenal have lost four home games in a row in all competitions. Plenty of panel representation at the Emirates. Rafa, you get first run of this. Did Chelsea win it or did Arsenal lose it? Uh, I don't think these things are necessarily contradictory. Um, Arsenal did their best to hang in uh, for most of the game. I don't think they played particularly well. They... They dragged Chelsea down to their level in the first half. Uh, Very effectively, Chelsea did not show up, had lots of problems playing any any sort of football. In the second half, when their rhythm improved, when they had more possession. Um, I don't want to say it was inevitable, but um, you could sense that this game could turn at any given moment with with Arsenal's frailties, uh, which they had done well to hide for as long as possible. But ultimately, I think that lack of quality and that uh, bit of extra quality, I think that Chelsea as a squad certainly had on the day, Proof telling. Uh, Tom, you described it on Twitter as the entire Arsenal decade in microcosm. Uh, happy to give you more than 280 characters to expand on that. Yeah, I mean, just to agree with Raf, basically, I think that the thing with Arsenal is even when they manage to get their noses in front and even when they're doing a little bit better than you expect them to, that fundamental Arsenal-ness means that you can't ever be sure 
how the game's going to finish until the final whistle and so it proved and, and you know Bernd Leno who has you know generally been one of Arsenal's more reliable players um, in the post-Wenger era produces probably his, the worst error um, uh, of his entire time at the club and inevitably it falls to Jorginho the guy who should have been sent off about 10 minutes earlier after uh, pulling back Matteo Ganduzzi when he was on the second yellow card um, and then yeah once once Chelsea got to 1-1 you felt that they had the momentum I mean you know they, they'd basically been in control of the game since at least half time probably a little bit longer and I think that's the issue with Arsenal is that I mean there were signs of improvement I thought the first half an hour or so until Frank Lampard made that change bringing on Jorginho changing the shape Arsenal looked like there was a bit more intensity about them they they pressed with a bit more coordination I thought Mesut Ozil had, had possibly his best certainly first half of the season so far but yeah, when you've got guys in your team like Shkodra Mustafi, you're you're never going to be safe from a Rick. And okay, it wasn't the worst mistake he's ever committed, but you know, a, a slightly more switched-on centre back does not allow Tammy Abraham to take three touches of the ball within ten yards of the opposition goal. Uh, and I think that I think that for me was the story of the game was that Arsenal were better than they have been and, and looked like they had a little bit more about them. Um, but ultimately, those individual failings are always going to let them down, and, and so it proved. Oh, we'll get to Chelsea in a minute, but what have you seen from Arsenal in these last couple of games that, that suggests that Arteta is, is already having an effect, if anything? There seems to be a clearer plan as to what they want to do. So passing network seems to be a little bit more established. It was quite sensible, smart from Arteta to, to play uh, Maitland-Niles so close to Reese Nelson. So two players that came through the academy together, they know each other quite well. They know where they want to run. They know how to cover each other. And it's that sort of... Similar thing to what Frank Lampard did in the early Chelsea games, which is sort of, I'm going to play blocks of players that I know know each other quite well from the academy. So even if things fall down, these two players know each other well and know where to stand, which I think, having seen Arsenal under Emery, there was just sheer confusion as to basic positioning. And it seems to be on the mend. I don't know if, if the plan for whatever Arteta ball or whatever nickname Arsenal fans wish to dub it. I don't know what that eventually looks like, but it, it just seems to be just a slightly clearer, oh, I stand here now, which says a lot. Raf, you saw Chelsea on Boxing Day play pretty poorly against Southampton and they were maybe even worse for the first half hour here. There's, there's been some criticism of, of Frank Lampard's actual coaching ability so far, but a big caller, a Jose S call in making that sub half an hour in taking Emerson off and that kind of changed the game and in fact all three of the subs that he brought on were impressive which is not something that's been the case for for Chelsea this season Yes it's true but I think he was actually right after the game when he made the point that this was not just about tactics I mean Chelsea just did not show up Um, it's fine I think to play three at the back which automatically often makes you a little bit more passive um, because it becomes a five and then you're you're lacking a couple of men in midfield and find it hard to press. And pressing has been one of the hallmarks of this team. But they were just very slow, very lethargic. They let Arsenal play right until the box. Arsenal didn't actually create a lot with the ball, uh, it should be said as well. I think they only had three, three shots all game. So it wasn't a masterclass by any stretch of the imagination. But I think Chelsea's attitude changed with the formation. And that was the big difference. And they found an outlet from the back. Whereas in the first 30 minutes or so, I mean, they were really just going long because they couldn't play through that press. Kante had a very poor game, um, was not the outlet that you think he would be, uh, the guy picking up the, the game. Kovacic got a little bit lost as well. Uh, and then having that, that extra man in midfield made a massive difference. So I think there's two ways of looking at it. One, you can say, well, Lampard's making the same mistake a few times now. The other is he is uh, smart enough to realise what's going on doesn't wait until after the game to say you know what we got it wrong but actually makes a very telling change and and writes the wrongs and and got a big performance out of sight bit of love for Tammy Abraham 14 goals before the turn of the year nine of them away from home yes um didn't have too much to work with for the bulk of the game um there was one opportunity that Tarek Lamptey the, the Chelsea sub who came on for his debut created um and David Luiz got a block in um to, to prevent Abraham hitting the target uh but yeah sort of kept his head up and and took his goal nicely um and you know he's he's had this slight burden of having not scored a goal against one of the big six before that his, his stats in those games aren't uh, as good as they have been in games against the, the lesser lights of the division so it'll do him good to have got that off his back uh, I quite enjoyed 
enjoyed the sort of Didier Drogba inspired goal celebration as well. And apparently he is someone who watches footage of guys like Drogba, Diego Costa. He's a, he's a big, uh, you know, sort of football anorak in terms of looking at strikers, particularly ex-Chelsea strikers, and, and trying to find out ways that he can improve his game. So yeah, that was that was quite a nice moment for him. Uh, word for Tarek Lamptey as well. Uh, Sensational. I think a lot of people would have thought, why is a ball boy coming onto the pitch? Because he's he's only five foot four, uh, blessing. But problem for him is that he's a right back, and they've got Reese James, who's very highly thought of, and if he's you know anywhere thinking about getting in the England team, he's a long way down that list. Interesting that he is pure Chelsea Academy, so hasn't yes, gone on no loans, yet. no loans yet. I will say. We'll see what happens in January. A uh, key question to finish, Rafa. Having sampled them both in a four-day period, who's got the best press room buffet out of Arsenal and Chelsea? Uh, this is no competition, as you know. Chelsea are renowned far and wide for putting on an, uh, an unparalleled um, I was smorgasbord. Was stunned. Both in quantity and quality. So <laughs> On Boxing Day. Yeah. Absolutely astounded. You went for the chicken and leek pie, right? I did indeed. Um, and, and everything. The sort of M&M's in a little jar as well. It's the, it's the buffet table that puts Chelsea above the rest of the competition because the hot food, maybe it's something you don't like all that much, but you know that once you kind of move around, you have that array of salads and breads and then the sweets table. And that that on its own is enough to, to put it number one in my eyes. Yeah, well done, Brian, and uh, all the chefs who sort that out. Uh, anyway, on this game, next up for Arsenal, Man United are at the Emirates on New Year's Day, brackets night. Uh, we'll look ahead to that soon, but logic dictates we should check in on what the Red Devils have been up to next. Uh, they won 2-0 at Burnley thanks to goals from Martial and Rashford. Some stats of note. United's first away clean sheet in the Prem since February. And Burnley have managed just two shots on target in their three games over this festive period. Uh, Carl, you're of a United persuasion. The, the knock-on Solskjaer's team is that they stumble against moderate opposition but they've beaten Newcastle and Burnley back to back so should we be revising that opinion? Absolutely not it's still the same thing Manchester United need space and uh, space on the attacking transition to, to score goals um, the lineup filled me with dread uh, a central midfield pivot of Nemanja Matic and Fred may be a little bit queasy but hey Fred turned out to be a decent footballer like I warned everyone at the start of the season if you gave him a clear role and give him a run of games he'll be fine hooray um Manchester United's front two. The good thing about that this pairing is not only do they have very, very good skills individually, but their skills mask each other's weaknesses. So Martial's hold-up play helps Rashford's comparative lack of hold-up play, Rashford's um, willingness to play on his front toes rather than stand on his heels all the time makes up for Martial's slightly French lackadaisical nature. Um, so that's very interesting. Fred turns out to be a decent footballer. Brandon Williams should be the starting left-back going forward now because I think the Luke Shaw experiment is over. Uh, and that's that. That's quite nice. It's bizarre that for all this talk, they're in fifth. Raf, no Paul Pogba in the squad, though. Have you got any inside information as to whether that means he's heading for the exit door? Would he leave in, in January anyway, given he's barely kicked a ball all season? I, I don't know how much of a market there is in January for a player like that. I mean, usually, um, you know, those, those marquee signings, that take months and months to sort out. There's sponsors involved. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It, it really takes a long time. And then whoever sells that kind of player needs the same time to buy the next marquee player to replace him. So I think that's going to be really, really difficult, even if he wants to leave, uh, to get a deal done. I mean, the reason why nothing really came of it last summer was because Real Madrid, his preferred destination, were really pushing for Eden Hazard and, of course, uh, eventually got them. And uh, PSG, I don't think, were that concerned with, uh, with signing yet another midfielder. Uh, I think they already have about 20 um, with Thomas Tuchel in charge there so it's not that easy I, I, I think that whatever we hear about him not being happy and all these kind of noises is all geared towards making a transition easier in the summer because the summer deal if it happens will start in February and March which is not long to go Would would Solskjaer miss Pogba do you think? Has he been more trouble than he's worth these last season or so? I'm not sure he's been more trouble than he's worth. I think the issue with Pogba when he's not playing is that because of who he is and because you know of the price tag, which still gets brought up quite a lot when you know when he's up for debate, um, you know he still gets spoken about. I mean, Pogba comes up in almost every press conference, even when he hasn't played for for two months. Um, and you know, I think what what United have shown this season is that they are capable of winning without Pogba. 
So you, you could actually argue that his, you know, his most recent period of absence has actually been quite helpful to Solskjaer in terms of preparing what is to come next. But at the same time, United are a completely different team when, when Pogba's there. I mean, I was at Watford just before Christmas. He came on for the last half an hour, first appearance for what, a couple of months and completely transformed the way they played. And he has qualities that no other player in the squad possesses. So, yeah, I, I don't think he's been more trouble than he's worth. I mean, he's he creates headaches because he's this this constant talking point. And I think because we, like generally speaking, people still aren't sure what you can reasonably expect from Pogba because, you know, you look at the Pogba at Juventus, that was a completely different Pogba to the guy who won the World Cup with France, who played, you know, in a much more disciplined sort of way. And I think you put Pogba in a successful team and give him some attacking freedom, he can be a really dangerous, consistent attacking player. But I think if you're playing him in a team where, you know, things aren't quite as fluid, where he has to put more of a shift in, he's not going to sparkle in quite the same way. And I, you suspect that Pogba will probably leave at the end of this season. I think it would be a great pity, just as a, a fan of English football, that we've not really seen the best of him because I can easily imagine him going on to wherever it is next and it probably will be Real Madrid and, and see him, you know, kind of get back to his best and we'll all think, oh, what a shame we never saw that when he was in England. There's also a suggestion, um, at least from someone I, I talked to at Man United, that he's not the, the most enthusiastic of trainers, which I think is, is problematic when you're supposed to be the face of the team and when, when there's a lot of young players who are looking for someone to set the tone. Um, I think that's really frustrated Mourinho. That's one of the reasons why it never really worked out between them. And as much uh, as a nice guy uh, Solskjaer might be, I think that would be something he'll be concerned with as well. Paul Pogba is always going to do what's best for Paul Pogba and it has been apparent since before the PSG game that the best place and the best thing for him is to not be at Manchester United. I think since the start of the season and he didn't get a run with Jujo, we were all sort of aware that he was serving out his notice and this notice now is apparently one where he's being injured and carrying it out at just above a level where no one can say he's on strike but not at a level where anyone's particularly gasping for him to return. All right, so it's Arsenal v Man United next, uh, as we mentioned in the... They used to be the preeminent teams in the league, but are now clinging to their status as big six clubs, Derby. <laughs> um, for Mikel Arteta, Raph, I guess that this is the kind of game, between now and the end of the season, win a couple of these against you know so-called rivals, and really that that's about all he can hope to achieve, isn't it? They're, they're not going to threaten the European places, just get a couple of marquee victories and, and show people that it is going the right way. Yeah, I mean, the Europa League, I think, still... It's probably the the big priority and the most realistic way of doing it. Um, but I think you're right. I think whether it comes through marquee wins or through sort of steady improvement, he has to show both to himself, but more importantly to the dressing room, that what he says makes a material difference and helps the team. I think even a game like yesterday will have gone some way to do that. Yes, there were problems. Yes, they didn't create a lot, but they did look more organised. They did... Um, have a clear game plan and everyone seemed pretty happy with their role on the pitch and there wasn't this confusion that we have seen before. So that is a good start. And I think he, he doesn't probably have to do that much to give everybody the sense that uh, things are slowly but surely moving in the right direction. And I think that's all he can really do at this stage. Right, that was a lot of chatter, quality chatter, but it's still time for producer Charlie to break things up with a brief interlude. It's that time of year, and everyone's making resolutions to just get better at everything. And it's no different at the Emirates. New manager, new defence, new midfield, maybe a new identity, a new captain perhaps, better fans, new board would be good. But at Paddy Power, we reckon it'll be a case of New Year, New Arsenal. So we're offering money back as a free bet on all markets if they beat Man United on New Year's Day. Paddy Power, home of the money back special. On this match only, pre-match singles, match refund £10, online only, no shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, BigGambleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Told you it'd be brief. We're back and we're talking sack Ings, sackings. Manuel Pellegrini, the latest Premier League boss to be given the heave-ho following his side's 2-1 defeat to Leicester, or much-changed Leicester as they were known in this case. Pellegrini departs with the Hammers, a place and a point above the relegation zone. He's replaced by his predecessor, David Sullivan and Gold, showing they care not one iota for the Stormzy warning by reappointing David Moyes. Friend of the show, founder of Pickfair and Hammers supporter Benji Laniado joins us on the line. Benji, the end's been nigh for Pellegrini for some time. Presumably you weren't shocked when you heard he'd been given his P45. No, uh, it sort of felt that way at the end of the Leicester game. Um, being beaten by Leicester's B team, I think it was 
actually a pretty sort of apt way for him to go. Um, looking back, I think the Pellegrini appointment was was maybe an attempt to sort of take a big leap forward for the club. But in retrospect, it just seems like it was like a big name to go with our big stadium, both of which are just completely the wrong shape. I don't think his, his era will be looked back on particularly fondly. And I think it's actually probably quite indicative of the mistakes we're making as a club at the moment. West Ham broke their transfer record twice in 18 months uh, under Pellegrini for Philippe Anderson and Sebastian Allaire. They spent £155 million during his time in charge, so he ought to have done much better, didn't he? Uh, yes. I mean, again, they were big signings. They were shiny signings. You look, you know, you look at Leicester's B team who beat us. There's lots of very sort of smart, non-flashy signings in there, like, you know, Mendy, Gray... Perez, Evans, Justin looked great at right back. Chowdhury, I know he came through their youth ranks. When he's not being a thug, he's actually a really good all-round midfielder. You look at our squad, you look at the more sort of peripheral players that we've seen over the last few weeks, and you know, none of them are good enough. I mean, Masuaku can't defend. Zabaleta's legs have, have finally gone. <laughs> we, we, um, we played him against Maximum and Zaha this season, which wasn't really fair, but still. <laughs> you know, Aleti can't score. Carlos Sanchez really isn't very good at anything. You just, you know, there's a real weakness in our squad, which you can't get away with these days, especially over Christmas. Last one on Pellegrini. He's one of only 10 managers to have ever won the Premier League. So he's not lacking in pedigree, uh, but based on his media persona, at least, he's definitely lacking in personality. Does that matter? Was it kind of difficult to warm to him? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, you, you look around the Premier League these days, and the best managers have got that combination of, of strategy and charisma. You know, you look at Klopp, you look at Hasenhutl. In, in reality, we were probably hoping that we'd get the, the Malaga or Villarreal incarnation of Pellegrini because, you know, his recent experience at Man City and then in China was completely irrelevant. Um, you know, and, and what he did at Malaga and Villarreal was much closer to what we needed, um, needed him to do. In retrospect, what we probably got was a manager really on his way down via China. And actually, that's one of the reasons that I wasn't that interested in, in, in Benitez as an option, because I think there is that kind of slight tacit acceptance that your best days are behind you when you head off to China and take, take the cash. So he's been succeeded by the man he replaced, David Moyes, uh, in charge of the Hammers two years ago for six months, took them out of the relegation zone then and well clear in the end. Um, but it's not an appointment which has been greeted with uh, widespread cheer, I think it's fair to say. What, what are your thoughts on, on the return of Moyes? Oh, my God. Uh, to, to, quote, um, to quote Daniel Story on Twitter, having to appoint David Moyes to save your season once is careless. Having to do it twice... Is, is negligence. <laughs> the, 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 the response from the fans is pretty much universally negative. There's very little way of, of looking at this as an exciting, positive thing. However, maybe the one good thing about his appointment is that it really underlines who is to blame here. The owners are, are going to back a manager now who they explicitly said was not high caliber enough when they replaced him with Pellegrini. And because they were so cat-candid with, with him last time, um, you know, Moyes was never going to take another six-month contract. So he's got 18 months, which is just a complete mess. Um, but, you know, I, I think the reason, the reason the Moyes appointment is so depressing is that he's the opposite of, of what I think West Ham need as a manager. We need someone who's young, hungry, innovative. You know, I'm really jealous of what Brighton are doing with, with Graham Potter. But crucially, that's not just a story of getting the manager right. In Tony Bloom behind him, They've got a truly modern, innovative, almost you know, almost scientific owner, and that's everything that our owners are not. So that leads me on then to my final question. Uh, nice, easy one for you. What are Gold, Sullivan and Brady's ultimate ambitions? What's their ultimate vision for West Ham? Because it just looks like a, a rudderless ship from the outside. It's a really good question. I think it can go two ways. One thing that's worth saying is that it's quite, you know, it's easy to forget that when they took us over... We, we had been, you know, bought by an Icelandic billionaire, you know, 10 minutes before the bottom fell out of the, the global economy. And we were in a mess, you know, and, and they have certainly, on paper at least, taken us forward. In terms of where they want to go with it, on the one hand, you sort of assume that they are hoping to sell this to some, you know, Middle Eastern oil barons. And, and, and there's certainly been noises about that in the past. And, and I think it's arguable that we've been sort of you know, ripened up for the sell over the last four or five years. On the other hand, a few people are saying that actually the intention here is just to pass this down to their children. Sullivan's kids have been very prominent over the last little while, um, over the last few seasons, certainly. So if, if it stays as a kind of old school family enterprise, I worry about us. 
you know, because it feels at the moment like we're, you know, we've got analog owners in, in the digital age. You know, having to rely on David Moyes again shows a you know, profound lack of imagination and planning and a real disconnect with where football is now. So I think the sale would be the better option for West Ham fans, although, you know, it doesn't feel particularly exciting. Uh, chaps, David Moyes, a man who, as Russell Brand once said, has a face that looks permanently set for disappointment. Why have they appointed him again, Rafa? Just because they're scared of going down? Yes, I think that is the answer. They, they're looking for, for the equivalent of a safe pair of hands and um, Noyce has shown that uh, that's something he can do. He's a sort, sort of slightly more cultured, slightly more palatable uh, version of Sam Allardyce. <laughs> and uh, I think at this moment in time when um, it's not far from pushing all sorts of panic buttons, it is probably seen as a, as a sensible, sensible solution. But the reasons why he got uh, sacked um, last time even if he's successful, they will only come back because West Ham have these ambitions to be something bigger than just a team surviving. And you wonder if David Moyes can provide that. And so ultimately, I think this is just going to be a delaying tactic to see where this real new direction will emerge from. Uh, and you still feel that they need some kind of transformative manager um, to take them much closer to their yeah, to where they think they should be. But uh, at the moment, uh, the best that can be said is that they're not yet in the championship. Uh, right said Nick asks, what are the chances the Moyes reappointment goes the same way as the Flores reappointment at Watford? And has a reappointment ever gone well? Dalgleish at Liverpool, Lippi with Italy, Taylor at Villa, Keegan at Newcastle spring to mind. Hank has worked out pretty well at Bayern. <laughs> Good point, yeah. I mean, Hedink basically did the same job twice at Chelsea. Except he didn't win the... any games second time round. Yeah, that's true, all. actually. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, no, 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 basically, no. Nick. <laughs> he's, he's not a good manager. West Ham are a Sophistian footballing experiment. They roll the rock up the hill and then they take it with a big sigh and it falls down again. They're going, fine, let's try it again. And they do this over and over and over again and they try exotic continental managers and personnel it doesn't work and they go fine let's do the opposite and do homegrown British personnel it doesn't work because West Ham refused to understand what is West Ham and these owners refuse to understand and engage with the fan base and understand what is West Ham and what the point of West Ham is so you just get this I mean even in the announcement video of Moyes he looks like the demon headmaster thank you very much Stephen Chicken for that lovely video of him <laughs> it's oh goodness if you're a West Ham fan I'm sorry Ugh. I mean, the problem that West Ham have got, the, the problems are structural problems. You look at... Got is, the, is their West Ham. Yeah, <laughs> fundamentally. And you, you look at what that means. I mean, you know, Manuel Pellegrini was allowed to appoint his own director of football or pick his own director of football, Mario Husios, who is now gone with Pellegrini. That's not how it's supposed to work. The director of football picks the manager and creates a structure which will survive any managerial shortcomings and consequently West Ham are locked in this sort of cycle of boom and bust as Carl was just saying you know you appoint a new manager uh, and again typically you make an ambitious appointment you give him lots of money to spend you bring in lots of big players it doesn't work out and then you revert to the sort of dour trusty British custodian whether that's Allardyce or Moyes and then you're back to square one and the fact they've had to go back to Moyes you know two years after not extending his contract because they felt that you know there was better out there it's just an indictment of how badly run the club is and the best they can hope for now is that Moyes will do exactly what he did last time which is sort of stabilize the club bring performances from underperforming players I mean you think back to the end of that 2017-18 season and Marko Arnautovic you know was was the guy who sort of like saved them from from the drop and you thought okay Moyes has perhaps been a little bit unfairly treated and not being been getting you know a chance to you know to try and take the team to the next level um but then here he is back again because West Ham don't know what they're doing and, and until they change maddening. that structure they're just going to be you know condemned to the same mistakes the, the contract situation suggests they are at least somewhat aware that this is going to be a diminishing return of Moyes but again to rehire David Moyes Two years after, and go, we, we kind of know what you're going to do, but it's going to be worse because there isn't an, an Artovic for you to like move into the middle this time. Oh, yeah, we've got no defensive central midfielders that know how to track their runner. Have fun. Well, his first game is at home to Bournemouth on New Year's Day, so uh, it's a biggie. At the other end of the table, Liverpool beat Wolves by a goal to nil. 13 points clear, 50 league games unbeaten at Anfield. Wolves furious with VAR, allowing Sadio Mane's goal, disallowing Neto's in quick succession. Uh, Rafa, you're on a bit of an island here in the pod in that you're the only person who doesn't like Jaffa Cakes, but also 
you're a big proponent of VAR. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it, well, it's not, it's not had a great weekend month season in the Premier League, but it seems to work a bit better in Germany. So is it is it the way that it's being implicated in England that is making it so unpopular? Um, well, I mean, there's, there, there's the thing with the monitors, which I don't think is, is a sensible solution when it comes to really subjective calls. Um, you're basically relying on someone else re-refereeing the situation for you. Uh, and in Germany, what they've found is that there's a bigger acceptance, uh, certainly on the pitch by the players, but I think by extension, maybe in the public as well. If the referee says, you know what, this is a 90th minute penalty, I'm not sure, I'm going to go over and look at the footage like everybody else is. Why should I be the only one of 10 million people watching this game not seeing the footage? Uh, that just seems to be a, a logical way to do it. The Premier League doesn't want it. And we've seen some some problems with that. Now, with the offside, it's, it's a little bit different. I think that the problem is here, as Bismarck once said, people don't like to see how the sausage is being made. Um, if it was just an instant or more or less instant call and says off or not, uh, and then maybe some lines thrown at the end of it that you look at it quickly and it's gone, then maybe we'd come to a situation where people would just say, accept it. Okay, it might, be, it might be tight, it might be close, but that's what the system says. We believe the system just as we believe the system when it comes to goal and technology. But because it takes time and because the Premier League want to be transparent and want to show exactly what point is being measured, people get terribly upset and come up with nonsense like armpits and uh, like stupid concepts that really do not actually relate to what's happening on the pitch, which is to just find the right measure, which is, the shoulder joint and and just cannot take it cannot deal with the with the marginalness of the situation um i i wouldn't say i'm pro var but i'm against the over anti-var reaction because before that you trusted an assistant or you had to trust an assistant to decide whether toe is offside or, or shoulder or whatever and you wouldn't second guess his judgment you might say he got it wrong but you wouldn't say well he only thought the shoulder was offside isn't that too marginal i mean he had to go with what he saw now you go with what you see a lot more clearer but somehow people are more upset when when that happens and i i find that a bit of a overreaction i think the issue with the var offsides is that it, it claims a level of accuracy that we know is beyond it yes. because of the because no, of the that's, frame that's, range. that's not true that's not true football does not claim accuracy I football think, is just hmm. saying or the technology is saying we get a better view than a guy on the touchdown with a flag who has to look at two different things 40 meters apart from each other. Okay, we, we try to find the right moment where the ball is being touched and we take that moment, that is the same moment for everybody else and then we see what the technology says. It's not a point of whether it's accurate or not. The point is that you try to do within the... Um, yeah, but the way it's but presented... Creates, no, but the way it's presented creates an illusion of no, millimetric accuracy no, but with, with the lines no, on the screen. but that's and, a strawman argument. That's, 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 but the tractors use that. It is very much the argument you're having. So the, I think essentially the problem we have is we went into this season not fully understanding what VAR is. And I've said this on previous podcasts I've tweeted before. A lot of people went into this season expecting VAR to be some omnipotent robot god when what it is is a bunch of referees in a business park way by an airport looking at screens and and then is your question they all are they getting it more right than the guys on the pitch or not if you accept that they do then the idea that they're not 100 percent right is irrelevant but even that question suppose it is not something that goes through the average person watching on television or the average person in a football stadium but when, it should, when, but it it should, should it should be because should, it should but if for, you're in a football for all the subjective for all the subjective decisions it was always going to be obvious that clear and obvious does not always apply because what's clear and obvious to one referee when it comes to a foul and a penalty, I might not clear and obvious to other one. People somehow got their head around it. No, they didn't. I think they have by I, now. I, they understand think, that something will stay contentious even though VR looks at it. I think there but is when it's the offside, idea. when it's offside, people have a really hard time getting around the fact that the system is not saying this is 100% true. The system is saying our view is better than the views of the guy on the pitch. I think that that message was uh, misinterpreted by by a, a large section of the football watching public, and I think we've reached the point now where VAR is possibly untenable because not only are these discussions being constantly had, but people are also getting quite bored of them, and it's got to the point where there is a I don't want to say anti intellectualism about VAR, but what you're doing is you're trying to put a 
technological solution into what is inherently a very subjective and quasi-philosophical argument of how much you want correctness in a sport that is inherently chaotic. Right. So when you talk about frame rate and you talk about offsides and you talk about how many rules in football rely on intent and subjectivity. And then someone went, oh, we've got a machine over here that can look at stuff. People went, oh, great. Sue, do that. Do that. And then the machine also misinterpreted stuff. and went, oh, no, it's the machine's fault instead of looking at what we've got, which is a frankly bizarre rule book that no one really pays attention to. And if you sit and watch a football game in the pub, you realize everyone's got four or five different versions of what football is and headcanon. Let's say the Norwich situation, the assistant ref either flags or he doesn't flag. He flags because he's just offside or he doesn't flag because he thinks he's just onside. Now, we actually have a much better way of telling whether he is is not offside. Sometimes he will be and sometimes he won't be. Sometimes the goal will stand. Sometimes the goal will stand and then people find it really hard to deal with because VR has taken our goal away, you know, it's taken our emotion away. But it's, it's still it's, the same decision it's because you that get, the linesman would have taken. It's because you get offsides given that don't morally feel like offsides. Like because the offsides the, the same the, the, as before. No, it's you not. just didn't see it. That's my point. This you did not see it. A referee could have just as easily flagged this one offside. Mm. And you would have never said, well, morally, that was a wrong decision because he was fans just... Absolutely, fans said that. When you think about how many times fans were saying, oh my God, these, he, the referees ruined the game by giving a red card or... No, the, no, 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 but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about marginal decisions. Before VR, they went one way or the other, but you never said, well, they were so marginal, they should have gone that way or, or that way. And, and it kind of, that's not football anymore. This, this is nonsense. The referee always had to make a decision based on what he saw. And if he fought marginally for whatever margin by himself watching it, he was off or on. He had to make the decision. Now you see that decision being made and played out graphically in detail and you can't deal with it anymore because somehow it's, it's not football and it's ruined the game. Actually, if you step back from it, it makes no sense whatsoever to have that reaction. And true. I mean, and this is, this is I'm more trying to explain how people react to those things than to say necessarily that that is the correct way to react. But I think one thing that we're getting with VAR is we're, we're losing goals because previously when the emphasis was on the benefit of the doubt to the attacker... It never was. No, that was always the guidance. That was always the no, guidance. No, that's, that's, that's another myth, mm-hmm. like daylight. Never it's was. Another, it's another headcanon. It's, in it's, the, in the it's same, it was... categorically untrue. The benefit of the doubt thing comes from a directive that was introduced when passive offside was changed. Do you remember? Because there was no such thing. Yeah, If you were off, and you, even you didn't make, mm. make the run, you were off. Then they changed it before the 94 World Cup. Then the directive was made, gave out, said, in those moments, give the benefit of the doubt to attacker. Make sure if he actually does get involved or not in the game. And some of people have internalized that and to think, oh, marginal decisions, the referees always give the benefit or used to give the benefit of the doubt. It's not true. That was never part of the game. The referee was always told, give what you see. There is no... There is no margin. If you think for whatever margin the guy's off, you have to give it. If you think for whatever reason he's on, you have to, you have to give it as well. That's what I'm saying. Now you see all those internal calculations that referees have done for hundreds of years. You see that played out and you don't like it. But actually, it hasn't really changed. Okay, that's enough. Can no say, more this, is, this is why Raf is a very useful voice on VAR because yes, he quite. takes a lot of my own kind of internal issues with it and then explains why many of them are misplaced. You're listening to the Totally Football Show. Let's get back to the football. Man City beat Sheffield United by two goals to nil. Uh, VAR was the spectre at the feast once more, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, Lise Mousse denied an opener before the classic combo of Aguero and De Bruyne condemned the Blaze to a first away defeat of the season. I mean, what an effort that is, by the way. Uh, on City, what, what are we thinking Pep-wise, Carl? Is he going to be around next season? I'm pulling a face. I really thought City were gonna fluff his pillows and move everything around him to make sure he can last. But he's—they're pretty fluffy already, right? They really are. Uh, it looks as if there's enough slow-moving chess pieces to suggest this might be his final season. His demeanor in many press rooms has been slightly more irritable and sarcastic than in previous seasons. There's Qatar World Cup. Sorry, is not gelling as well at Juventus as we all thought. There's that really, really fun. Argentinian called Mauricio Pochettino sat at home doing something right now. The percentage of Pep leaving, I'd say, is probably in the high 30s this season. But it's a lot higher than anyone thought. And I think also City and the people around Manchester City are now no longer going the priorities to make sure Pep is 
fluffy pillows and he wants to stay, but also going, what are the options? Hmm. So Which he, I think is the very first time they've considered that as well. If he does stay, Rafa, is there a case, we know David Silva's leaving at the end of the season, is, is there a case maybe to to go a bit deeper with, with squad refreshment and move on an Aguero, a couple of others who've been there for a while? That will have to happen regardless. Apparently they, they're looking for five players, so uh, Jesus, Mendy, I'm assuming there's going to be a far, far more rotation at a uh, fullback position. Again, one more centre-back. Vincent Company's a free agent and can return if he wishes. Yes, five new players in the summer is apparently the, the understanding of what City want to do, which is a huge overhaul. I think it'll all come down to the Champions League. If, if City go on and win it this year, then I think Pep might well walk. If they don't, then I think he'd be very reluctant to because he'd be seen as some kind of defeat at some level, having had really been given everything at, at, that he wanted and not won the Champions League at a third club after Barcelona I think his ego would, would find it hard to take so I think it'll all come down to that in a funny way the fact that they're out of the Premier League race might might help them a little bit um, I think lack of focus has been an issue it's perhaps understandable if you have two record-breaking seasons that your third one is not going to be quite as focused what you think you know what we've done this now we want to win the Champions League and even if those 10-15% are missing somewhere for a team that plays such a precise such a finely tuned football that is probably enough uh, to be more human and more beatable I don't think necessarily that Guardiola feels that um, his 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 work is done and he, he needs to now move on I think it, it'll really be decided when when the Champions League comes around again so that's City. Tom, we ought to give Sheffield United some praise. They they dropped to eighth, but but what a first half of the season for them. They're not going to be doing a hole in the second half, right? Chris Wilder is not Phil Brown. No, I think that is probably safe to say. Yeah, I mean, incredible. Um, to have avoided defeat in every away game until the last one of, of, of the year is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and I think we've seen this quite a lot over... Over the last week or so, you think about Newcastle as well, another team who've who've had a better season than perhaps people expected. That there have been teams who've sort of hit the wall a little bit, um, you know, over the last week or so. Having said that, I thought Sheffield United played really well. Um, as you said, created more than their fair share of chances in the first half. Had legitimate, if not grievances, about the manner of City's opener. Then you know you can understand why they they felt they've been they've been you know pretty unfortunate with it. Um, so yeah, obviously disappointing to lose that that run of uh, unbeaten away games. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought they'll be stewing over for too long. Okay, elsewhere in East Anglia, the points were shared. Norwich 2, Tottenham 2. Daniel Storey saying on last Monday's pod that Norwich were done for. They keep playing while they're not winning. They prop up the rest six points and a whole lot of goals from safety. Yet to keep a clean sheet at Carrow Road this season. Can anybody make a case for them staying up? I don't think they are. Oh, Cantwell's quite funny, isn't he? (laughs) His burgeoning friendship with Young Thug. I quite enjoy that. But no, I think Norwich are prepping for their parachute payment and their rebuild in the championship. And then when they come back, they'll be a little strong. I think Daniel Falk will stay. They're doing what Osprey are doing right now. Sort of, OK, we'll go down. We'll retool. And when we come back, we'll be a much stronger force. Uh, Raf, where do you stand on their summer parsimony? So they spent 750 grand on a reserve fullback and that's it. it was that in, in the acknowledgement that they were always likely to be amongst the bottom three or should they have been a bit more ambitious? It's very difficult to say because spending money doesn't always equal quality as we know from, from clubs like West Ham for example. Um, I tend to err on the on the side of, of sort of giving club credit for saying you know what there's, there's a strong possibility we might go down if we sign all these Premier League players on Premier League wages when we go down we have a real problem on our wage bill it might never go, it might never go up again. Even with a parachute payment so being able in a position where you can establish yourself as a um, contender to go up immediately again might actually make more sense sort of for Norwich's organic growth, even though um, fans will, will probably look back and always second-guess this decision, which is, which is normal. Um, the question is whether Farker will actually be there because uh, he has been in the mix for a possible return to Dortmund uh, as head coach. In case um, Lucien Favre's time is coming to an end, uh, which is a constant uh, source of debate uh, in in Dortmund, uh, but he's very highly rated. And uh, again, I think that should tell you that people are looking beyond the results and are thinking sort of within the context of what he has done and what he can do. 
that he's still a pretty extraordinary manager. Yeah, uh, to go from Norwich to Dortmund would make him a lucky fucker, I would suggest. <laughs> um, Spurs-wise, Tom, Christian Eriksen named man of the match just in time for January. How vexed will Jose be that he's relying on this guy who seemingly is not interested in being a part of his plans beyond this season? Yeah, I mean, and Mourinho's uh, approach to that was sort of pr- predictably Mourinho-esque in that he you know, was trying to build a team that doesn't feature Eriksen and yet Spurs are clearly a better team with Eriksen in um, and you know, I, th- I think you saw that in that game against Norwich obviously you know, scores, scores that fantastic goal um, and they look a much more coherent team when he's on the pitch the same with Tangi and Dombelli um, who we haven't seen very much of uh, but who, who was excellent at Norwich I think Spurs' big problem has been defensively 10 goals they've let in in the 8 league game since Mourinho came in only one clean sheet in that run which is something you, you really don't associate with um, Mourinho teams you look at both Norwich goals Juan Foyt losing the ball um, in, a, in a dangerous area for the first goal and then that completely calamitous second Norwich goal when Toby Alderweireld successfully tackles Timo Pukki but in doing so succeeds only in kicking the ball against his own teammate Serge Aurier and then dribbles into the net so yeah Spurs have got Spurs have got big defensive problems um, but yeah you tend to think that when they've got Ericsson on the pitch that they do like a much a much more cohesive team than, than when he isn't there uh, Norwich, another home game next against Palace. Meanwhile, for Tottenham, it's a trip to Southampton on Wednesday night. And we'll meet the Saints in the bottom half of the table next. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Uh, Southampton won, Crystal Palace won. Danny Ings with his 12th Premier League goal of the season. He scored 50% of Southampton's goals, the highest proportion of any player in the PL. This is your specialist subject, Carl. How, how deep in the soup would they be without Ings? Uh, I think it is now... If you take away Danny Ings' goals, he's worth nine nine of their points. He's extraordinary. If you sort of look at what Tammy Abraham is doing for Chelsea, then take around about one shot or one XG per game. And you bear in mind Southampton don't really create attacking chances. They don't particularly have a number 10 in the same way that Chelsea side do or the, you know, the wide players that Chelsea have. Danny Ings is more or less feasting off scraps and is turning chicken into chicken soup, which is remarkable. He's got a fantastic running style that I've looked into uh, doesn't get played in 90 minutes quite often so I think he's only completed 90 minutes four times on Hustle so if you're an FPL person if he starts great if he doesn't oh no he's maybe going to get 20 and if he stays fit he's in this weird space where he probably deserves an England cap on merit but you don't want to give him an England cap because that might break his very tender knees Okay, uh, and have you seen enough in the three games over Christmas? Wins at Villa and Chelsea, and then the draw against Palace to to make you think that there are three worse teams in Southampton. Yes, it's been a very strange mini revival for Southampton ever since the second international break. So they obviously Hassel wants them to press very high up the pitch. They press like one of the top five six teams. Their pressing numbers were really 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 good. Then they had the game with Spurs at home, and it just sort of fell apart. They were god awful against Everton had the international break and clearly over those two weeks Hassel went right this is how you press this is what we're going to do they changed back into this 4-2-2-2 playing the Hassel-Hultall football that he did very much at Red Bull Leipzig James Ward-Prowse is in the middle James Ward-Prowse phenomenal snide um, has really helped out at Southampton as well they're 15th now and I think many Southampton fans thought they'd be between 9th and 15th and I think yeah they might just cheese it uh, Palace meanwhile injury problems still Tuesday but they've still only lost one of their last seven Hey, should we go to Vicarage Road, just metaphorically, uh, to talk about Watford 3, Aston Villa 0, a double for Troy Deeney, 3-3 three and three for him under Nigel Pearson, the boy with the Birmingham City tattoo, particularly enjoying this, 5-3 league games for him against Villa. Uh, timely for him to come back, Rafa, and same question as we posed with Southampton, have we seen enough since Pearson came in to make you think that they can pull off what would be a sort of great escape, pretty good escape? Yeah, it would be a remarkable um, escape. I mean, they're still they're three points behind safety, which at the moment uh, is encapsulated by a shambolic West Ham, which will probably improve. So it'll be difficult, even if their form improves, to keep to keep going. But it's they're not out of it. They've just done enough um, with the points that they have so far to be alive still. And I mean, you mentioned it. I think Troy Deeney makes such a big difference. He is he is a guy that gives everybody confidence. He is awkward to play against. Uh, people hate him as uh, as defenders. Opposition fans hate him. He winds everybody up. And uh, I think you need that sort of irritant if you want to play successful underdog football. And he does it better than, than most people in this league. 
Uh, Tom, I'm a bit worried about Villa. I thought that they'd be pretty steady this season, but they've got the worst away record in the division, four points from a possible 30. And it feels like none of the players that they bought in the summer, and there were plenty of them, have been particularly impressive. Wesley missed a big chance in this game. Heaton's been okay in goal, but it's really Jack Grealish plus 10 a lot of the time. Yeah, obviously now that they've lost John McGinn, um, who you know is such an important part of the way they play. Um, and yeah, I mean... Obviously, letting three goals in at Watford, there are clearly defensive issues there. But you mentioned Wesley having having not scored goals for what feels like about six months. Um, they only had two shots on target in the entire game, and that's despite playing against ten men for over half an hour after Adrian Mariapa got his marching orders. Um, and that that is a worry. And, and we spoke before about the decision that promoted teams face in terms of how many changes they make to their starting lineup, how much sort of cover they bring in in their squad. And, and, you know, we've seen contrasting approaches this season. Sheffield United basically kept things as they were and have absolutely flown. Norwich kept things as they were and have basically sank. Uh, and, and Villa's approach, you know, they, they were the biggest spenders by a long way out of all those promoted teams. And, and it's it's familiar, or at least it, you know, it recalls what Fulham did last season uh, in that, you know, came up from the championship having having you know played some lovely football and, and, and then spent an awful lot of money and, and went through the entire campaign without ever really finding the right formula. And it feels a little bit like that's that's where Villa are. Um five defeats in six now in the league and, and whereas teams like Southampton and, and Watford have found a second win, Villa just do seem to be sort of sinking into the mire. A couple more games to rattle through Premier League-wise. Brighton 2, Bournemouth nil. First win of the festive period for Brighton after successive defeats. Two good goals here as well. Uh, some people tip Bournemouth for the drop to uh, widespread derision. Anyone now like a ticket for the Bournemouth are bad bandwagon destination, the championship? I'm buying a ticket. I'm talking to the uh, Bournemouth writer for the Athletic, Peter, and he he is very often sending me some crying emojis when he sees a Bournemouth game saying, I, I don't understand what's going wrong. But again, bad and unlucky in this very weird, you can look at the XG sets and the PPDA and the passing sequences and go, this looks like a very good football team. And then you look at Bournemouth and you go, what is going on? The way Bournemouth make mistakes in football are always the critical, simple ones. And you're like, oh no, this is bad. Dominic Solanke, a whole calendar year without a goal. That was bad. That was really, really, really bad. Uh, Raf, what's your opinion on Eddie Howe? Is he any good? Of course he's good. I don't think there can be any real doubt about but he, this he, guy. He, I he think seems we just to get got... linked with big jobs. And you think, well, hmm. I think there's two things. A, I think we just got used to him doing incredible work. And the novelty factor has run off and he has done some unbelievable stuff with the size of a club like like Bournemouth and that fan base, etc. And we all got used to it and the fact that they never really got anywhere closer to the top half, we kind of sort of shrug off. And now that gravity is kind of pulling uh, a little bit, we perhaps a little bit quick to to say he's, he's not very good. I think he is. The problem um, I think that he has is that he is perhaps not quite blessed with the oodles of charisma, uh, which I think is something that uh, the big clubs want. They want a talker. They want a face. They want a guy that is box office, that people turn up uh, for the press conferences, that people want to watch in conversation afterwards. And he, whether by design or by default, I don't know, uh, because sometimes you feel he doesn't doesn't perhaps want to engage uh, with the press that much. He doesn't provide that. And I think that's that's been his real problem, that he doesn't uh, excite people, whereas I think his body of work would suggest that he is actually a pretty good manager. I think Eddie Howe's good, but also, critically, managers around him are getting better. If you look at what happened to Mark Hughes, who everyone thought was a half-decent manager, you know, somewhere in the top half, and then slowly kept getting the same amount of results as teams like Southampton went from Nigel Atkins to Mauricio Pochettino. When that happens, when the sort of Premier League middle class and those around you start being able to go out and get, you know, Daniel Farker linked to Dortmund when that begins to happen two or three times and you're just giving out the same amount of results possibly spending more and more money and then really annoying thing about the Premier League is eventually all of your weaknesses will be brought to the forefront and Eddie Howe's weakness for a long time was Bournemouth just go on these bizarre streaks where they just lose four or five games in a row and you kind of hope that there are still worse teams around you that by the end of it you end up in 13th if you're getting what you're getting now which is basically Southampton figuring out what they want to do Watford, Nigel Pearson figuring out what they want to do, then slowly just begin to sink. Eddie Howe is the exact same manager he was two or three seasons ago. The problem is everyone around him is getting slightly more switched on. 
I think if you look at Bournemouth's upcoming fixtures, away at West Ham, home to Watford, away at Norwich, and then the return fixture at home to Brighton, we know, as Carl was saying, that they are a team of surges, and you could you can well imagine them getting a decent points tally from that, and they'll be back at the beginning of another run, and that generally is what has kept them out of trouble in their Premier League experience so far, and and it's that that means that when you look at the league table, you see how close the relegation zone they are, you still think, oh well, that they'll turn it round, but can they keep turning it around forever? We'll find out. Well done, uh, Graham Potter and Co for winning that game. The other match, Newcastle. Aaron Moy's goal as yes. well. Yes, small note about Aaron Moy. Okay. I mean, what? that was a good goal that he scored in that match. Yeah. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Just want that on the record. All right. Be remiss not to mention okay. it. Okay. I'm trying not to have to pronounce Ali Rezi Alabash, so uh, I wasn't going to go that big on the goals. But there <laughs> I thought we you did very well. Thanks. Uh, Newcastle won Everton 2. Two wins out of two for the Toffees under Carlo Ancelotti and Dominic Calvert Lewin in the goals. Eight in the Premier League for him this season. Already his. Best ever tally, but the big stat from this game, Andy Carroll won 24 aerial duels, the highest number since Opta started recording that data in 2006. He's so good at winning headers, picking the left back or the full back and just sort of bullying them routinely three or four times. It's, just, it's a very, very hard thing to do of just very sort of Jedi mind trick. I'm not here and then just going by a fullback. It must feel quite emasculating as a sort of not particularly tall fullback to keep spotting Andy Carroll standing next to you at set pieces and thinking, oh, I know, I know why he's done this. It's because I'm not as big as him. I was at St. James's Park and I saw Andy Carroll stand next to the five foot eight Cedric Suarez and he stood next to him waiting for the ball to be delivered at his chest and he tapped him on the shoulder and as Cedric looked at him, he span around and took the ball on the inside and I went, oh my goodness. <laughs> you're brilliant when you're fit, aren't you? Um, the great thing about Everton, you mentioned Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I said he was a, not a number nine, but sort of a weird inside forward who's really, really good at the back post and it looks as if he's beginning to make these sort of runs towards the near post now, which is, he's finally learned how to be a striker. Hooray! Right, still plenty to chat about, not least Haaland to Dortmund and Gerard to Utopia. But first, let's get some odds. Producer Ben's been speaking to Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. You've probably forgotten what day it is, but I tell you someone who always knows what's going on. It's Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's talk about the New Year's fixtures, please. The biggie is Arsenal versus Man United. What's going to happen here? Crikey. Almost as tight as my trousers in the aftermath of Christmas and... By trousers, I mean tracksuit bottoms with an elastic waistband. But anyway, you can tell when it's a tough one to price because our traders start using all the fancy fractions. Arsenal are 6-4 to four to win this one. United are 8-5. to five. And that makes the Gunners 1.5% more likely to win with the draw at 5-2. to two. Now, I know it's hard to bet an Arsenal win at the minute, but you don't have to with our latest money-back special. We're offering money-back as a free bet if the Gunners take all three points here. That applies to all markets. Max free bet £10. Check out the TNCs. They do apply. This game's actually taking place on January the 2nd, but it's Liverpool at home to Sheffield United. Oof. Oof, indeed. I, I can't make that noise that you did, can I? <laughs> but what a couple of away games for Sheffield United. They are good on the road, though. In fact, before they lost to Man City on Sunday, Sheffield United were one of just two teams in England's top four divisions not to have lost away from home. The other side... Liverpool, of course, and it's them, the hosts here, who are the big favourites to win this one, as they will be for every game for the rest of the season. Liverpool one to five to get the three points. The draws five to one, and Chris Wilder's men are eleven to one to get the upset. And finally, Lee, it's Southampton versus Spurs. Give us some numbers here. Hmm, it doesn't seem that long ago that Ralph Hasenhutl was so certain to be sacked that he was booking up a New Year's getaway of his payoff. Instead, after taking seven points over the Christmas period, he'll be stuck on the south coast of England, linking arms with strangers and singing that song no one knows the words to. But we don't expect Saints fans to have much to sing about after this one. Tenuous segue, I know. They're 23-10 to 10 to beat Tottenham, having had more success away from St Mary's recently. Spurs are the favourites, but we did see against Norwich how they can contrive to make things difficult when visiting relegation-threatened teams. They're 11-10, to 10, so not odds-on to win this one. The draw is 12-5. to 5. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. T's and C's apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, any other business I hear you ask, listener? Yes, loads, I answer. Uh, Rafa Dortmund have signed Erling Braut Haaland from Red Bull Salzburg. 19 years old, 16 and 14 in the league, 8 and 6 in the Champions League. How long have, have Dortmund been working on this and how many other clubs have they gazumped to get the deal over the line? Well, I can't answer how long they've been working on this, um, but they were certainly part of the uh, tour that Minerala undertook in his private jet uh, around Europe. 
to see where the next um, best uh, destination is and uh, possibly also where um, the best commission could be achieved. Uh, but uh, this is mere speculation, of course, on my behalf. There was, I think, a feeling by those close to him, both in Norway and also at um, at Leipzig, who had maybe a bit of an insight because of the Salzburg connection, that the Bundesliga was uh, perhaps a more natural destination for him from Salzburg rather than going straight to a uh, big European superpower or Man United. <laughs> um, so that didn't surprise us that much, but I think it's still a big coup that Dortmund managed to pull this off um, against this kind of competition. Um, we have to see how much longevity that transfer will have. There is talk of a release clause being inserted. I mean, Dortmund a few years ago made it a point of business not ever to include release clauses anymore after what happened to them with uh, Mario Goetze going back to 2013. So it'd be interesting to find out, uh, which I'm trying to do over the next few days, whether they have broken that rule for him. Um, that's certainly the, the suggestion coming from Man United that they pulled out rather than were being turned down. But I think in, in, in pure sporting terms, if you leave all the money aside, I think it makes a lot of sense for, for a guy who is, is still growing and especially as a centre-forward who tend to peak uh, in their mid-20s uh, to make that next step rather than try to go two or three steps up and, and, and do what... Uh, perhaps the Ligt has done and maybe regrets, I don't know, but uh, go all the way to this um, superpower chasing a Champions League trophy. Um, what Dortmund can offer for him is a, um, a starting place. They've been dying for a big centre forward for, for many years now, really since Obama Young left. And maybe it might just get them over the line in, in the league, which would be really exciting for, for all sorts of reasons. But um, the fact that I think the league... Uh, on the whole, now has this player uh, that uh, many leagues and many clubs coveted is 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 great news for the Bundesliga. Matej has tweeted as asking what the ramifications are of this transfer for the rest of Dortmund's business for January and the summer, I guess, as well too. Does that mean there's going to be more incomings and does it mean there'll be any outgoings that maybe we weren't thinking of? No real ramifications. I mean, the transfer fee was very low. It was a release clause. Uh, of course, if you put on the add-ons uh, and, and the fee, it'd be quite a substantial um, outgoing. But um, the obvious or sort of uh, immediate conclusion that this will somehow impact on what happens to Sancho is is really a little bit off the mark um, they play very different positions uh, Dortmund um, are under no illusions that there will be big market for him in the summer especially if it's not possible hear me out if he leads England to uh, Euros you know they can probably name name the price then so selling now wouldn't make any sense financially selling now would not make any sense uh, for their ambitions which is to win the league again so um, it doesn't really have any immediate uh, repercussions. And again, I think it'd be what's more interesting is how long can they really have Haaland being this new guy that uh, they can create the whole attack around? Because if he's only going to stick around for a couple of years, then they might get caught in this constant rebuilding process, which has hampered their chances in the past. Uh, elsewhere in transfer land and brace yourself for a month of this tedium, listeners. Latan Ibrahimovic has rejoined AC Milan. Six-month deal, he's 38, Milan 11th in Syria. Haven't won any silverware since he left in 2012. Concerns in Serie that he might not be old enough to do it there. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. In Scotland, Rangers won away at Celtic as the Scottish Premiership goes into hibernation. Some celebration from Steven Gerrard. He, he quite enjoyed that, Tom, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of whether I've ever seen a manager get that pumped up by a result. And it was twice. I think there were a couple of occasions where he just happened to notice there was a, a TV camera sort of pointing in his direction and sort of like screamed right into it. Um, but yeah, obviously a, a big win. Yeah, and obviously Alfredo Morelos got sent off uh, right at the end, as is his one. Why not? It's the style of the time. It's pretty good. Two points behind Celtic with, with a game in hand. If he wins the league with Rangers and breaks that Celtic monopoly, then that is a huge success. Yes. And it would put him in a good position to maybe replace somebody at Liverpool when both their contracts expire in 2024. Indeed. Uh, in the Championship, Birmingham 4, Leeds 5. Birmingham equalised for 3-3 on 83 minutes. Leeds back ahead a minute later. 4-4, 90 plus 1, only for Wes Harding to head into his own net in the fifth minute of stoppage time. 
uh, to paraphrase Sir Alex Ferguson, football flipping heck. To further boy Bielsa's boys, West Brom were beaten in the league at the Hawthorns for the first time under Slavin Bilic at home to Middlesbrough, who hadn't won away from home all season in what can only be described as vintage championship. West Brom now ahead of Leeds on goal difference alone and those two meet on New Year's Day. Elsewhere, Luis Suarez went and goal during Diego Forlan's farewell testimonial match in Uruguay. Juan Roman, Raquel May and Juan Sebastian Verón also played, as did Sergio Garcia, the golfer, of course. Uh, and the big Abingdon derby in Oxfordshire ended prematurely. Abingdon Town decided to go home at half-time. They were 8-0 down to Abingdon United, uh, town at bottom of Hellenic League Division 1 East, which is a great name for a league. Uh, finally, here's hopefully a fun point of discussion. Given the decade has ended with Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard and Mikel Arteta all in management, which current Premier League players will be managers in 10 years' time? I'll throw you up an easy one, Tom. Jordan Henderson at Sunderland. Um... Yeah, conceivably. I think the tricky thing is with uh, often you, there are players who you think are kind of nailed on to become managers and it turns out they don't actually fancy it all that much and it's players who you perhaps wouldn't have tipped to become managers who, who do. So it is a difficult thing to predict. But yeah, I mean, I, I can see Jordan Henderson coming to, coming to management. I think you, you tend to think that, you know, it's, it's players who are players who are naturally talented who sometimes struggle to to make that adaptation whereas someone and you know no disrespect whatsoever to Jordan Henderson but someone whose career has kind of been founded on graft and constant self-improvement you know perhaps has the the kind of temperament um that, that you need for that so yeah yeah why not Kevin and De Bruyne absolutely Ooh, yeah absolutely sure. there's got to be a defense there's no defensive midfielders out there for me to go yeah he's one no. Benjamin Mendy, spell at Exeter, maybe? God, he'd be fun, wouldn't he? I really just like the idea that Benjamin Mendy was taught by Marcello Bielsa, and Bielsa was like, yeah, grand, he's fine. And then Pep's just ringing up, going, what have you? Jorginho <laughs> <laughs> looks like a future manager. Yes, he's very much a, uh, a leader on the pitch, isn't he? We shall find out. Hopefully, it'll be somebody random in there, too. That's it for today, this year, and this decade. My thanks to Tom, Carl, and to Rafa. We'll be back on Thursday in the company of Carl. Michael Cox and Lindsay Hooper do join us then if you can slash want to until then bye for now you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too thetotallyfootballshow.com